Y'all do take a seat. Great to be here with you this morning. Uh, not sure how the weather was going to impact attendance, but actually we're doing all right today. And it's, it's on days like this when you get a sense of who's going to have the front row seats in heaven. People will actually show up. So, uh, We are, of course, progressing on in Advent, and it's hard to believe that next weekend we're going to be singing Joy to the World. But not yet. Don't sing it yet. We have to stay where we are and be in Advent for another week or so, and then we get to sing Joy to the World, which we'll, of course, be doing next Sunday. We continue today in the sermon series for Advent called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, named after that great and beautiful hymn written by Charles Wesley. And in this series, we are looking at stories from the Old Testament that anticipate and predict the coming of God's Messiah. Today we're going to look at a story, really an oracle, from the prophet Isaiah, which Mike just read for us. Before we dive in, let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last weekend, as I think Stephen may have mentioned in the service, if you were here, we were away. We were up at my parents' house with my folks for my dad's retirement the uh, end of his 41-year career, a uh, wonderful milestone, also stirs up a lot of emotions as you realize that people you love are aging. But it was great to be there, and while we were there, I saw a book in my parents' house called Making Friends with Guinea Pigs. Have you ever read that book? I expect you probably haven't. My mom has a somewhat eclectic taste for books. She likes to buy books with odd titles like that. This book was probably printed 40 or 50 years ago. Anyway, I see the book and I said, Mom, I think the kids might like to read that. Do you mind if I take it back to Polly's Island? She said, that, that's fine. So on Monday night, after we get back, I sit down to read Making Friends with Guinea Pigs to Audrey. And it starts with the birth of this guinea pig called Cream Puff. Uh, and at about age seven weeks old, Cream Puff is purchased for a little boy. And the boy really likes Cream Puff for about two weeks. Um, then he gets tired of his new pet because, after all, Cream Puff cannot play fetch. And so he stops playing with Cream Puff, and more significantly, he stops doing his chore, which is to clean out Cream Puff's cage every week. Uh, and it's for that reason that the mother decides it's time to find a new home for Cream Puff uh, for this guinea pig. And that's where the story took a really unexpected turn. Instead of sending Cream Puff uh, to be somebody else's pet, Cream Puff gets sent to a laboratory. Ominous music playing. And then what happens? Let's just say that the poor guinea pig lives up to its name. Cream Puff gets injected with a disease in the laboratory uh, so that he can be used to test the efficacy of a vaccine. Cream Puff becomes ill, unable to eat or drink, and I'm quoting here. Cream Puff loses weight. He lives in a cramped cage. He's constantly being injected so as not to get dehydrated. Eventually, Cream Puff's recover. He recovers. Evidently, the vaccine worked. And then what? Does Cream Puff get a, an accolade? Does he get a prize? No, he does not. Because Cream Puff was a long-haired guinea pig, uh, he was deemed to be a hindrance for further testing. And so he was, and here I quote, scheduled to be destroyed. Now, you can imagine the look on Audrey's face when we got to that part of the story. It was not the story that we expected. It was called Making Friends with Guinea Pigs. We were expecting something sentimental and fuzzy. The title certainly uh, engendered that expectation. But what we got in that story was brutal honesty. 
here's what actually goes down with a lot of guinea pigs. By the way, you're all free to borrow that book from me anytime if you'd like to read it to your grandchildren. It was jolting to say the least. Though in the very end, I am pleased to report things did warm up. One of the uh, big-hearted lab techs decided that she would adopt Cream Puff, so he didn't end up getting destroyed. After all, he went to her house, he lived to a ripe old age, and then he went to his father's in peace. So it was a happy ending of, of that story. Now, why do I tell you this? Because I tell you this because Isaiah chapter 9 is a little bit like that guinea pig story. A lot of you are familiar with this passage. You just heard Mike read it. It's often read by Christians around the world this time of year. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You probably have sentimental expectations about this, but in fact, it is not a sentimental passage. Old Testament prophets are not sentimental types. It is a tough passage. It's a passage that invites us to come to terms with some of the darkness that's in this world uh, and, and, and in us, and we've got to grapple with that. But it's not all darkness, of course. It's also a passage that has a new dawn. Uh, there's the coming of this light bearer, this child who's going to cast out and clean out all the darkness. And so we're going to think about that too. We're going to think about the darkness and we're going to think about the new dawn as we work through these very famous verses that Christians read in Advent. Let's start with the darkness. And I think Angela's had this printed in the bulletin. So if you want to follow along, please do. It's God's word that's most important, much more important than my words about God's word. Verse 2, people walking in darkness, people dwelling in darkness. Deep darkness. People living under rods of oppression. Verse 4. The world is filled with battle tumult. It is littered with garments stained in blood. Verse 5. Not a pretty picture. That's us. That is humanity. We are the ones to whom the child of light, the Messiah, introduced in verse 6, comes. Yet to say that this Messiah, who we know is Jesus, by the way, to say that he comes to us isn't, in fact, the most precise and accurate way to describe his arrival. You see, he didn't just come, he was given. Verse 6, to us a son is given. A son is given. And that is significant because that means that Jesus is a gift to us. And, and just like any truly great gift, the gift of Jesus is an absolute surprise. Because when God came to the world, when he put on the face of Jesus of Nazareth, he came in weakness. And that is not what you would normally expect God to do, because after all, we're talking about God. Soon enough, maybe even already, to some extent, we're going to be giving gifts to each other, which is entirely in keeping with the spirit of Christmas. Our gifts, however, are not always surprises. Take me and Cindy, for example. I know what Cindy wants for Christmas, a new grinder for the garage to do some work on the boat. And she knows what I want for Christmas, uh, a book called 500 New Sourdough Recipes. You never have to eat anything else. So we know what each other wants for Christmas. When we open those presents under the tree, it's probably not going to be a surprise on Christmas morning. But the best gifts, and you all know this, the best gifts are gifts with the element of surprise. Because surprise enhances the power and the delight that comes with the gift. That's why kids love to shake the boxes under the Christmas tree. What's in there? Is it a new guinea pig? Maybe it's a little sister. That's what Audrey said she wants for Christmas. She's not getting that. The element of surprise makes gifts all the more marvelous. It leaves you blissfully wide-eyed. You, you, you're thinking, I never expected this. It is beyond my expectations, but it is exactly what I needed. And I never would have thought to get it for myself, let alone buy it. So thank you. That is the best gift. That's what happens with the element of surprise. That's the kind of gift that Jesus is. That's the kind of gift that Jesus is. He was not on the world's Christmas gift list. If you ask the world what kind of gift God should give the world if he wanted to save the world, the answer would be power. Why? 
because there are forces in this world that make me less happy than I want to be. There are circumstances that do that. And so I need somebody to come and deal with all those circumstances and deal with all those people on my HOA who make me less happy than I otherwise want to be. And then I'll have salvation. By the way, this is exactly why Jesus had so many people following him as long as he showed his power through healings and casting out demons and multiplying and creating food out of thin air. As long as he was doing that, people lined up. They liked the power. They lined up. But then his career ended in weakness, just like it started. He was born in a stable, remember? It ended in weakness. It finished in weakness. And what did people do? They split. They split. And when all was said and done, Jesus ended up dying on a cross. And everyone said, in response, they said, forget it. That could not be God's gift for our salvation. Not that. Most everybody rejected him. He was not on the Christmas list. Guess what? This is the same reason that a lot of people still reject Jesus today. Let me put it like this. When we think about the gift of our salvation, we also tend to think in terms of power. We too easily and often believe that our problems are chiefly caused by things out there. And so if God really wants to save me, if God really wants to help me, help me, Lord, then what he needs to do is send some power so I can deal with that adversary, so I can neutralize those people who are messing up my happiness, keeping me from being my best self, living my best life, messing with me. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll have salvation. This pattern of thinking is at home in all of us to a greater or lesser degree. We're always pointing the finger. And by the way, we've been doing that since Genesis 3. God comes along and he says, Adam, why'd you eat that fruit? Eve. She made me do it. What did Eve say? Snake. That's how it goes. Why do I have so many problems? Because of them. Because of those people, those circumstances. That's why I have problems. The problem is my kids. The problem is my parents. The problem is I just can't get a break. The problem is my boss. The problem is my spouse. FYI, you're their problem too. The problem is that I don't have enough money. The problem is that I don't know the right people. That's the problem. So you want a Messiah to come in and deal with all those problems out there. The Bible's evaluation is very different. And we know this because the gift that God puts under the Christmas tree, under the Christmas tree of the world, to deal with all our problems, to deal with all the darkness, is an unexpected gift. It's a weak gift. It's someone born to set people free by dying on a tree, which is what the Old Testament calls the cross. Here's the biblical evaluation. The darkness into which the light of God has come to shine is not just out there, it's also in here. At the most foundational level, the problem isn't those other people who are making you miserable. The problem is that I am a sinner. The problem's inside. We are self-centered. Charles Darwin was right about one thing. It's survival of the fittest, struggle to survive. Yes, it is. And when we do that, we tend to think about yours truly first and foremost. That is our default tendency. Which means, and I want you to listen really carefully now, this is what it means. It means we do not need a Messiah to come along and destroy all those evildoers out there that are causing us problems because then we would all be destroyed. That's the biblical evaluation. Even Mother Teresa And she would not disagree with the fact that I said that about her right now. And so that is not what you need. If that's the kind of gift that God sent, the power gift to destroy evil, where would you be? Where would I be? Where would Mother Teresa be? What I need is someone who will come in and deal with my sin. 
someone who will show me my darkness because I don't like to look at it. I like to live in denial. Someone who will die for it. Someone who will clean me from it. Now there's hope. Are you beginning to comprehend the gift that God put under the Christmas tree? Now, I recognize all this talk of darkness can be a little bit tough to hear. It's not sentimental. Some of you right now are thinking, why is the preacher talking this way? Nobody's going to come to the church if you talk this way. Hear me out, gang. Is it not so much easier, so much more natural to see all the darkness out there, to focus on all the problems out there with those people, all those things that afflict me from the outside? That is what we all tend to do, and it's called deflection. You're good at it. I'm good at it. And that's a problem. we got to see that. There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of deceit. There's a lot of violence and destruction in this world. We need to see that. We need to act in response to that. But we also need to see that all of that ultimately depends on the sin within. That is the root cause, according to Scripture. The acclaimed writer G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what's wrong with the world? And his answer, I am. Bingo. Can you say that? That's where the answer starts. That's not the whole answer, but that's where the answer starts. And so a real Christian is someone who says, when I first saw the gift of Jesus that God put under that Christmas tree, it was not the gift I thought I needed, but now I see that it is. Now I see that you gave me, Lord, what I needed most all along, and I would never have asked for it otherwise, so I praise your name for it. I praise your name for it. Have you ever said that? Has that ever been part of your religious experience? Unless you come to terms with the darkness, then the joy that you want to experience at Christmas is always going to be muted. Those gifts under the tree will make you smile, but they will not make you jump for joy. All right. We've spent some time in the darkness. Now the sun's going to rise, even though it's not going to be out rising outside for a while, but it'll be back soon enough. So let's shift gears now think about the new dawn. What can we say about this light-bearing child, God's Messiah, the Christ, that the prophet Isaiah has a beautiful vision of? Well, for starters, verse 6, this guy has quite a name. What's in a name? These days the answer is often not very much. Uh, if you're like me and many of you, I'm sure your parents gave you your name simply because they like that name. Uh, but, of course, Sometimes, these days, people can be a little more intentional in naming. I saw an article a few years ago about parents who had named their kids Espen. That's spelled E-S-P-N, by the way. Espen. Apparently, there are a lot of Espens out there. Did you know that? This was actually in the Washington Post. A lot of parents named their kids Espen because they're big fans of E-S-P-N. Now, you just know that if you have that name, you've got some expectations on your life. You know that. That's the name with significance. In the Bible, like that, names have significance, especially when they're given by God himself, like the one in verse 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God gives these names to this child, this Messiah, a.k.a. Jesus, so that we can understand what he's going to do to deal with our darkness. So what I want to do now is just scroll through each of those parts of that beautiful name and think about what they mean, what they reveal about the work of the Messiah. First, there's wonderful counselor. What Isaiah is saying here is that the Messiah is going to be a supernatural teacher. He's going to point out the truth like no other person can. And his words will endure eternally. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 24. Yet this wonderful counseling is not just about teaching. It's also about having a plan. 
And Jesus did. Jesus has a marvelous plan for each of us and for his church and for this world. He's just like a good coach, just like a good mentor. He's got a plan to get you to the place where you need to be, to get you healed, to get you whole, to get you back in line with the purpose for which you were created, to get us all back into communion with God. Because in the end, that is the only truly and eternally safe place in this universe. Do you know that? Back into communion with God. Now, it's one thing to have a plan, but it is an entirely different thing to be able to implement that plan. As they say, if you fail to have a plan, you're, fa- you're planning to fail. But at the same time, planning by itself is not enough. A few years ago, my youngest sister, Helen, got her dream job out in California working for a company called Rivian. You ever heard of Rivian? It's like Tesla. They make electric cars except they're trucks. It's the electric truck company. She was so excited to be working for this big tech startup. It was her dream job. They had an amazing plan. Uh, They had an amazing product. They were getting all these investors left and right. But then the plan hit the fan. There was a a fiasco. It was one supply chain uh, issue after another. And the leaders of that company were utterly impotent to do anything about it. And so there was a huge retraction. Some of you might have read about this in the Wall Street Journal. And the leaders were utterly powerless to turn the company around, which meant that my sister's dream job lasted about five months and 20 days. And then she was made redundant. She went to work for Audible. Can the Messiah deliver on his plan? Can he carry the luggage? Well, what's his name? Mighty God. And so the answer is affirmative. When Jesus came in weakness... When he overcame our sin and darkness through weakness, he was still very much mighty God. He could overcome any opponent. The power and the glory were always still there. They were just veiled. But they were still there. And if you look at Mark's gospel, for example, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, that is made abundantly clear. Because in those chapters, what you see is Jesus overcoming one opponent after the another. He overcomes ignorance and error. He overcomes demonic spirits. He overcomes sickness. He overcomes the cruel forces of storm and famine. He overcomes death. He resurrects a little girl. If you scratch Jesus, who do you touch? You touch mighty God. That's who you touch. Isaiah is saying that the child that will be given is God. That's who Jesus is. That's part of his name. Don't forget that. But there's more. The Messiah, this child, is also called everlasting father. What's that mean? In ancient Israel, among the people of God in the Old Testament, the concept of father was actually pretty unique compared to other cultures in the surrounding area. Uh, It was extremely different, for example, from the father concept in ancient Greece and Greek mythology. Some of you have studied the Greek myths, so you'll know what I'm about to say. In Greek mythology, the gods like Zeus, for example, or Hermes, they would frequently come down to earth, and what would they do? They would sow their wild oats with reckless abandon. That's what they would do. And in doing that, if you know the Greek myths, they often created monsters. Some of you know that kind of story too well. Some of our dads were like those Greek gods. And so there are monsters and there are demons. I know that. In sharp contrast, underline this, the fatherhood of God is about delivering and redeeming people from monsters and from bondage. It's about changing the trajectory of life for the better. That's what God is always doing in the Old Testament. You're enslaved, I'm going to free you. You're hungry, I'm going to feed you. You're thirsty, I'm going to give you water. You're crippled and lame, I'm going to heal you. And so when Isaiah says that this child of light will be called everlasting father, what he is saying is he is someone who will care for and guard and protect his worldwide family. That's you, that's me. 
He's going to know each of us intimately. He does know each of us intimately from beginning to end. Every hair on your head is numbered. Jeffers makes God's job easier. He knows every sparrow that falls. The Messiah is working tirelessly for your good, and that is what Jesus is doing right now in time and for all eternity. You need to know that. Some of you are anxious. I know that. The more you know this, the less anxiety. You do not have to fear an unknown future when you are in the hands of an all-knowing, everlasting Father. And finally, there's Prince of Peace. This is perhaps one of the favorite parts of the name when we come to the Christmas time of year, the Prince of Peace. What does Isaiah mean when he calls the Messiah child the Prince of Peace? Well, let me say this. For starters, it did not mean that there would be a cessation of war from immediate effect from the time that Jesus came going forward. Jesus actually says there are going to be wars after he's gone. So what does Prince of Peace mean? It means at least two things. First, it means that Jesus the Messiah is going to bring the peace that matters before and after all other peace, which is to say peace and reconciliation between us and God. We're talking about the peace that he established between humanity and God through the blood of his cross. We're going to talk about that more at Easter. And second, and I love talking about this, Prince of Peace tells us about the goal or the ultimate purpose of everything that Jesus not just did but that he's doing right now. In Hebrew, some of you know this, the word for peace is shalom. And shalom does not just mean the absence of war. It means a lot more than that. Shalom is about flourishing and thriving in the widest possible sense of those words. It's about health and happiness. It's about good harvest and whole families. It's about a world that is emptied of envy and resentment and deprivation and corruption. It's about the end of everything that is ugly and dehumanizing. No more unchecked aggression. No more passive aggression. That's what shalom is. Shalom is written on the flag of the Prince of Peace. And you know what? We should expect a preview of that right now because Christ is with us. The Prince of Peace is with us by the Holy Spirit. And what I need you to know is that shalom will also be the only reality in life in the age to come. I want to live in that place. So there's the name of the child given by God, this light-bearing Messiah who has come to deal with the darkness, not just around us, but also and especially in us. Now, did Isaiah understand fully what he saw in this vision? I doubt it. I doubt he fully understood. It probably blew his mind, but I'll tell you what he did know. He did know that in this child, God would gather up into himself all these things, teaching and planning with astounding wisdom, the possession of amazing supernatural power that can heal and restore that he would call him, call, be someone who would preside over his people with benevolent compassion. And that ultimately he would lay down his life to establish peace and usher us into God's kingdom. That's Jesus. That's his name. That is who he is. He's the Christmas gift. Do you know this? Some of you are nodding. Yes, of course, we're in church, so we know that. We're going to sing about it in a minute. I know that. But you know what? You can go like this, and you can sing about it, but you can still be refusing this gift in your heart. I know that from firsthand experience. And that's why you may be filled with anxiety. That's why maybe you're being driven into the ground right now with a sense of unworthiness. Maybe that's why you're irritable and angry more than you wish you be, and more than you wish you were, and more than your spouse and your children wish you were. That's why you're doing things to physically hurt yourself, maybe things with blades, maybe things with food to hurt yourself. It's why your joy tank is never more than a quarter full. It does not have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. We've got to look at the darkness of our lives. We've got to come to terms with that. 
but much more consequential is his light. The light of my wonderful counselor, the light of your mighty God, the light of our everlasting Father, the light of the world's Prince of Peace. Let that light in. Take the gift and rejoice in it. I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.